All right, you can take a seat. If you have a Bible, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you don't, uh, there are Bibles in the back. In fact, uh, can we scoot in? We have people in the back that are still trying to find seats. So if there's an empty seat um, around you, scoot toward the center. All right. All right, all you people looking for empty seats, be bold. We are, uh, Ryan, can you turn me down just a little bit? Did, Brian? Hey, Ed. Uh, we're, get, we're beginning a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're working through it. Uh, but we're entering a five-week series where we're going to be talking about relationships. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be studying some, I think, some really critically important truth that, as a community, I think we need to embrace. And uh, we're going to use the singles in our room as guinea pigs to learn this truth, all right? So if you're single here this morning, hang on, because the next two weeks are about you. But you're who we're going to learn truth through. But it's kind of a funny thing. Uh, can anybody tell me when you become a single? Like, at what age do, does that happen? 14. <laughs> wow. Is it different for men and women? Men, what age would you say singleness begins? 37. Did somebody say that? Okay. For women, what, what age do you think? 22. All right. I have no idea, actually. It's kind of like uh, I was talking to some of the uh, females in our community. I call them females because when we did the announcement for the women's ministry, I asked them, I said, when you hear announcements that we're going to have a women's event, do you, what do you think about? And they, they immediately said, even though they were in their mid-20s, that announcement was for my mom. All right? Wow. Okay, before we read this, let me, let me just say a couple things about being single, that uh, I'm not single, uh, but we're going to tackle this myth today. Singleness is something that needs to be fixed. So we're going to kind of take this apart and, and wrestle with it because, you know, being single is hard. It can be a hard time in a person's life especially if, uh, if they want to get married. If you're single and you want to get married, this season can be difficult. And if you're single and you feel called to a life of singleness, uh, that can be difficult too. But it's a difficult time because whether you're saying, hey, I really want to get married, or no, I don't want to get married, um, people sometimes make it difficult for you. Like, if you're single here today, has anybody ever tried to set you up with that, uh, that weird cousin who lives in a cabin and collects Beanie Babies? <laughs> no, really. He's a little obsessed with Kennedy's assassination. But no, other than that, he makes his own soap and he doesn't bathe. But y'all are perfect for each other. But it's not just other people that want to fix you up. Uh, I vowed years ago, I will not do that. So if you ever ask me to fix you up, it's a sad thing. My wife, on the other hand... Uh, she finds 
great joy in messing up people's lives. Uh, but it's, it's other singles. You guys do it to each other too. You mess with each other's heads. I remember when I was single and I was a youth director and this girl came to our church and she came up to me and she goes, I, you know, I have such a call to youth and I want to volunteer in the youth department. How do I learn about that? And I said, well, we, you know, I'd love to sit down and tell you about what we do. And she goes, great. Why don't you just come on over for dinner tonight? I'll just throw us a sandwich on the table and you can tell me all about youth group. Okay. I was naive. I was young. All right. I didn't know. But I was walking into the Black Widow's web. I mean, I am talking, we, I walk in the door and she's dressed in sequins. All right. And in the 80s, that meant love, all right? <laughs> she had a, a whole thing of candles on the dining room table, and they were lit. And I'm not kidding you. She, she asked, this is the first thing she asked me when we sat down. Do you think you'll be single forever? I married that woman. No, I didn't. That's not Renee. <laughs> Wouldn't that be hilarious? <laughs> you wear sequins? That is awesome. Rhinestones. In the 80s, they had those machines where you could make your own rhinestone. Like you could turn your blue jean jacket into a rhinestone marble. You remember that? No, you don't remember that because you were not alive. <laughs> it's not just other people and it's not just other singles. You do it. You mess with you when you're single. I mean, think about it. When you go on a date, is there not a tape playing in your head? Is this the one? Is this the one? Could I spend my whole life with this person? Look at the way he chews his food. Could I endure that for 50 years? <laughs> all right. All right, let's see what the Bible has to say about singles, all right? We're in chapter seven. Now, chapter seven is, a, is about singleness. It's about marriage. It's about divorce. And we're going to hit all those topics in the next five weeks. So we're going to jump around because Paul jumps around. So look at verse one. It says, now for the matter you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. All right, let's go to verse eight. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I will not make any jokes at that point. We're going to go to verse 25. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. I notice only married people are laughing at that verse. What is Paul saying here? Let let me just say uh, what he's not saying. First of all, he's not saying that marriage is something that you shouldn't desire or that you shouldn't want or that it's wrong because that's just not uh, proofed out in the rest of Scripture. Marriage is something that God 
has elevated and, and called beautiful and a means by which he wants to work in this world. So he's not downgrading marriage to say singleness is better. And he's also not saying that if you're really spiritual, like if you're super spiritual, then you'll stay single. That really spiritual people don't get married. No, it's only until after you get married that you realize how unspiritual you really are. Okay, that was it. All right. So what is he saying? Let's go to verse 29. Because I think this is the heart of what Paul is trying to say. In fact, he begins this with these words. What I'm trying to say, or what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they have none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. Paul is saying that we need to live a different way. In fact, he's saying as Christ's followers, we're to hold very loosely to the things of this life. The disciple John said it a little differently, but maybe a little clearer in 1 John He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. I think what Paul is challenging us in these two passages is he's saying, we need to understand the difference between want and the difference between desire. And we need to decide which direction we're going to give our lives to. So let me try to explain that. Want is something that comes from my mind that seeks to gain power. And desire is something that comes from my heart and and wants to be held up and captured by power. So want is what I'm creating out of my mind to acquire power. Desire is what's going on in my heart that wants to be captured by power. So let's try to unpack that. And see what I'm talking about. You know, want is when our minds begin to create a picture or a situation or a thing that I think will make me happy. Or I think will take away my pain. Or I think will give me some kind of fulfillment. So what I'm doing with my mind is I'm creating a scenario or a person or a situation or a thing or a job or stuff or whatever, I'm imagining in my mind that if I can get that, if that happened in my life, then I'm going to be full. Then I'm going to be happy. Then I'm going to be satisfied. And so what happens when I begin to create these scenarios in my head of what I want, then something begins to transpire within me. Because remember, want is the, the journey in which I'm trying to get power. Because once I realize what I want, then I have to decide how do I get the power to achieve it. And we become code breakers or what I call comparative religion. And what I mean by that is when once I got in my mind that this has got to happen to make me happy or this has got to happen to fill my life up or this has got to happen before I'm going to be out of the pain that I'm feeling. Now, as you can see right now, that we've kind of left the world of singles, and now we're applying something to all of us, but we're using our singles as guinea pigs. Remember that, okay? So singles, we love you, but we're using you, all right? 
Because we all do it, don't we? We all, when we get in pain, we imagine what's going to get me out of this pain. Or when we feel empty, we imagine what's going to make me feel full. And so we create this scenario on our minds and we become code breakers. And what are code breakers? What's the secret formula? If I could just get the right information, then I could get what I want. Or the question, who has the answer? Um, When I went to high school, I don't know if you remember your first day as a freshman in high school. I went to a very large high school in central Louisiana. And I came from Brame Junior High. Yeah, we were the Gators, all right? And, you know, what was true at Brame Junior High is everybody that went to Brame Junior High was either in 7th or 8th grade. And when I entered the first day of high school, I walked down the hall, and I was in shock because there aren't students here. There are men here. Like, there were guys with, like, full beards, you know, and, like, prison tats, you know. And they're just, just, I'm like, good Lord, there are men in this building, and they were my fellow students. I didn't even have hair in my armpit when I was a freshman. I was so afraid, not of the men, but of the women in our school. They scared me because the school I went to at Brame, there were no women. There were girls, all right? I go to high school, and there are like, you're, you're a woman, like, you're not, I don't want to spit, you know, spitballs at you. You would hurt me. You know, you're a strong, confident, okay, you're a woman, you know? My first day as a freshman was confusing enough, and then they do that thing that they do in large high schools, is they give you three numbers, and they tell you what your locker is. And, and then they try to explain to you how to do a combination lock. Okay, you go to the first number, to the right, and then you go to the left, but then you pass that number up, okay? Then you come back to that number, then you go back to the right, and any of y'all had that experience? And, and you never get it right. And the freshmen, you can always tell a freshman, because they're sitting there, and they're, they're pretending like they know what they're doing. You're like, hey, hey, hey. And they're on like the 40th time, like, what's going on? I can't get my locker open. And you're just terrified to ask anybody for anything. And then you lose your number, and then you have to go to that mean janitor who keeps all the lockers, combinations, you know. I won't even talk about the cafeteria. We don't have time today. But, you know, is that, is that kind of like singleness? If I can just figure out the combination, if I can just figure out how to, if, if you want to get married, how do I get married? Where's the, you know, the article in the magazine that tells me here are the 10 steps to ensure that you're going to find the perfect spouse, you know? Or if you don't want to get married and you're, you're comfortable, you feel called to a single life, how do you figure that out? And we become code breakers when we're trying to create images in our mind of what we want. Or we become comparative religion. It's an interesting thing. Uh, some of you know Paige Benton. She lived here for a while and was a teacher uh, in our community. She wrote this about uh, when we and the church tried to become code breakers. She goes, warped theology is at the heart of attempts to explain singleness in the church. For example, some people in the church say, as soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone into your life. 
meaning as if God's blessings are ever earned by your contentment. Or some people say, well, you're just too picky. As though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs broader parameters in which to work. Or some people in the church say, as a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. As though God requires emotional martyrs to do his work in which marriage must be no part. Or finally, she says, you know, the route, the code breaker for getting married is before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. Isn't that special? As if God grants marriage as a second blessing to those who are perfectly, are perfectly sanctified. You know, another way that we approach getting what we want, another way when we leave the code breaking behind and we realize there's not a secret formula to really get what I want, we become what I call the religion of comparing, comparative religion, is that we begin to look at other people and say, they got what I want, how did they do it? And I'm going to start comparing myself to them. And I'm going to figure out what their secret is so that I can make myself more like them. The problem with being comparative religion in the journey of being single is it starts with there's something wrong with me that I've got to fix. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not cool enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not dumb enough. I'm not witty enough. I'm not cool enough. I sweat too much. That may be it. No, seriously, we begin to compare ourselves, but the way we start with comparing ourselves is we shame us, that we look at ourselves in the mirror and we go, you're not enough. And so we shame our current position of where we're not enough, and then we begin to look for people that seem to be enough, and we ask ourselves, how can I become more like them? When I was in college, my freshman year, the guy that lived down the hall, uh, he was just the coolest guy ever, uh, introduced me to all kinds of new music, uh, was from Florida, and had a perm, you know, one of those wavy perms. And uh, it was so cool. He was just, he was just charismatic. And I remember asking him like, dude, like you don't ever have to comb your hair or anything. And we both had long hair and he goes, no, man, the perm, you you need a perm, man. The girls love the perm. So I go home over spring break and I ask my mom, mom, where does a guy get a perm? Like what, where do you, she goes, I'll set you up, no problem. She sent me to her salon. What I didn't realize when I went in is there are loose perms and there are tight perms. I came back with an afro that actually came, I mean, it was, why do we do that kind of crazy stuff? Because you've got stories like that. I mean, don't you? I mean, we could take turns. We could all things that you've worn, things that you've done, ways that you've acted at parties, you know, stuff that you've tried to be. You know, the problem with shame is shame moves me into a place that's mentioned in Ecclesiastes 4.4. It says, and I saw that, that all toil and all achievement springs from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless. Solomon calls it a chasing after the wind. But we all do it, don't we? We all look at what we think is a model, we shame what we are, and we move closer and closer to the model. 
The damage that we do is we, we do violence to our own souls because now I'm starting to live somebody else's convictions. I'm starting to live somebody else's life. And when I start to do that, guess what I leave behind? The me that God created me to be. The beautiful, the beautiful gift to this world that God is giving through me being me. See, Paul is calling us to something deeper. And I think what he's calling us to is not once. That's a very small thing. He's calling us to desire. Desire, which is birthed out of my heart and doesn't long to have the power to get what I want, but longs to be in the power that wants me. Think about it. What did you want 10 years ago? Do you still want that? You see how wants change? But let me ask you this. What did you desire 10 years ago? Do you still desire that? Desire. I think about our deepest desires to be loved, to be connected, to not be alone, the desire to be seen, to be fully loved. Our deepest desire is to be made whole. And you know what's funny is that's not just a singles journey. I know people that are married that are longing for that, that want that desire to spring forth in their own lives. So why are you not married? I'm about to answer it for you. If you're single here today, I'm going to give you the answer of why you are not married. All right? Because God is being good to you. That sounds like some cruel joke a married person would say, doesn't it? No, but seriously, turn to Romans chapter 8. I want you to see something, all right? Bear with me. We may go five minutes long in the teaching today, but this is worth us going along about because this is so significant for us as a community, all right? <laughs> all right, Romans chapter 8, verses, uh, well, start in 28. We know, and this is familiar to many of you, we know that all things God works together for the good. Stop. We know God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. What is he saying? If you're in Christ today, which I want you to hear that because if you're new to this journey, you can be out of Christ and you can be in of Christ. Just because you come to church doesn't mean that you're in Christ. And if that confuses you about that question, you need to go on the journey of answering that question. What does that mean? Why did Jesus come to rescue us? What did he rescue us from? But if we are in Christ, if we have been rescued, what this passage is saying, that God now is working everything to your good. Everything to your good. See, in fact, I want to submit to you this morning that God is bound by his holiness to do nothing but work toward your good. In everything. He is bound by his character and by his holiness and who he is as God to work everything in your good. See, let me explain. When Jesus went to the cross, Jesus took to the cross with him all my sins. 
He took all the ways that I had violated the laws of God, the character of God. I am guilty of every accusation that God could possibly throw at me. And yet here I stand accused and guilty. And God, through Jesus, took all that to the cross and took it off of me. Now, what does that mean? Some of you are familiar with it. If I am in Christ, meaning if in Christ on the cross, I died with him, and then in his resurrection, I rose with him, now I'm a part of the family. And as a member of the family, I am justified, meaning Jesus wiped the slate clean. It's just as if I have never sinned. So when I stand before God, I stand one that has been made pure, purified, cleansed of all my sins. I stand in the righteousness of Christ, fully accepted by the Father, fully loved by the Father, and the holiness of God is committed to work good in every situation in my life. See, here's what's interesting about justification. Jesus isn't standing before the throne of God saying, God, please have mercy on Randy. Oh, I plead mercy. Please, in all your compassion and your kindness, look on him. He's pathetic. Please, didn't you see his perm back in 85? Have mercy on him. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is standing before the Father in his judgment seat, and he's looking at the Father, and he's saying, Father, execute all judgment on him. He deserves justice. And what is justice? It's all been paid for. See, Jesus doesn't plead mercy for me. He pleads justice for me because he paid for everything. It's already been paid for. I can't be punished for a crime twice, right? It's all been paid for. So the mercy that God gives me comes through his justice. I deserve his mercy now. That's what it means to be in the position of Christ. I deserve his love now. That's what it means to be in the position of Christ. I deserve his goodness now. Woo. Yeah? No? Nobody's excited about that? Thank you. We could become a Baptist church. Like, come on, bring it, you know? Listen to this. Later in the chapter, he says, what then shall we say in response to what I just said? If God is for you, who can be against you? It's in the Bible. No kidding. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God went to such great lengths to put me in the position of favor that he gave up his own son for that. He says, if that's what God did for you, how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give you all things? Do you think God is limited now? No, God says, I am working all things for the good of those who love him. So if you're single here this morning, it is for your good. If you're married here this morning, it is for your good. If you don't know what you are this morning, it is for your good. If you are in Christ. He says in Psalm 37, now do you hear these words afresh? Take delight in the Lord, position of Christ, and he will give you the desires of your heart. God is saying, don't play around with the wants. Come into the deeper desires. He goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Hmm. 
Well, I know what you're thinking. Well, if, if my life is good, like, if you don't understand what happened. This is what's going on. And if I was God, I wouldn't let that happen. If I was God, I wouldn't say that's good. So either God is not good or he has a twisted view of what good is. Or something completely different. Or maybe he sees what you can't see. And that's hard, isn't it? Isn't it hard when you're in so much pain and it feels like God is so far away? That's hard. So when we're in that hard place, how do we step into the truth that I just said? How do we speak truth into that? How do we join with David and the psalmist where he says, Lord, I will rejoice with you. I will praise your name. Even though the enemies surround me, even though the, you know, all is going against me, I will lift my face to you. You know, Psalm 3, where his own son had rose up against him and was trying to kill him and overthrow his kingdom so that he could be king. He said, Lord, you are the one that lifts up my head. We do what it says here. We acknowledge. It says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, and acknowledge his ways. What does that mean? That we speak truth into our struggle. I preach the gospel of Christ into my life. I speak the gospel of Christ into my friends' lives. I ask my friends to speak the gospel of Christ into my life. Well, what would that look like here? All right, let me finish up. What would that look like? For me to say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put down the engine of creating and trying to get the power to get what I want, and I'm going to come over here and go, you know what, my deepest desires is not the scenario. My deepest desires is to be loved. My deepest desires is to be in love, to be captured, to have power come and scoop me up and hold me within its hands. Something that God wants to do with me through Christ. So, Lord, I'm going to put down my wants and my hungering, my lust for power, and I'm going to come over here in my desires, and I'm going to let you meet me in this place. And I'm going to let you speak truth to me that you're working for my good. What would that look like? Just real quick. One is, happiness would stop being somewhere other than where I'm at. Happiness would stop being something over there that I'm constantly trying to get to, but it just seems to get further and further and further away from me. That happiness can be right where I'm at. The scriptures say, be still and know that I'm God. You know, I'm going to just tell you, singles, uh, if you ever get married, if that's God's design for your life, and you live under the belief that happiness is over there, and you attach that to marriage, and you say, I'm going to be happy when I get married, do you know that you're putting a weight on that marriage that the weight's not strong enough to hold? Marriage will not make you happy. <laughs> that was our local counselor that just said that, all right? <clears throat> it's not going to make you happy. 
But once I begin to live in the truth that God has me, that he's, he's put those desires in me, God, meet me in the deep, dark place of my own heart's desires, even for those of you that are married. Then I find a contentment and a peace that's birthed within me. That's why Jesus says he's the Prince of Peace. He comes deep inside of me and he brings me into his peace. And now I experience and taste happiness. Does that mean that marriage can't add to my happiness? No, it can but so can a lot of things. So happiness isn't something over there because that's all about shame and where I'm at is never good enough and I've always get to another place and it's restless. And all, Anyway, it's a, lo- a whole other sermon. The second thing that it does is hope stops being in something as shallow as what I want or a situation and it goes to someplace very deep. See, if my hope is in certain circumstances working out or what I imagine in my mind coming to truth, I'm going to live a life of constant disappointment. Matter of fact, if you were born in a family that taught you always have expectations before you do anything and life is great when life lives up to your expectations, then you probably are a very sad and disappointed person or you're a control freak and you're very happy. Let me explain. Do you ever go to a party and you imagine this is what's got to happen at the party for it to work out great for me? You know? Hope should not be so fragile a thing that it sets itself in situations that I can't make come true. Hope should go to a deeper place. Let me explain. When Maggie was uh, my daughter, she was like three years old. Maybe I've told this story before. We had one of those... uh, the, the bongo bats, you know, they were like hollow and they were like big. And when you hit it, it goes bong, you know, bong. The kids love that kind of stuff. And my son and I were playing it and she walked out the door just as he was swinging. And he caught my three-year-old little girl right in the eye with the bongo bat, you know, and just split her eyelid right open. So we rush her to the hospital and she's bleeding and she's crying and She's, she's looking up at me, and the doctor goes, uh, we got we to gotta sew it shut. And he goes, the danger with something like this, if we're going to keep her awake, is I'm going to have a needle that I'm going to have to sew it up near her eye, and she's three years old, and it's hard to keep her still. I said, what do we do? He goes, well, we're going to wrap her in a blanket. So they strapped her arms down to her side, and they wrapped her in a blanket, and they had to shoot Novocaine into her eyelid. All right? Is this gross enough for you yet? People in the back are getting ready to pass out. Please don't. No. Stay with me. It's a good story. Here's the thing about Maggie. She did not want to do that. She's three years old. She's like, please, no. Don't wrap me in a blanket. I just want to go home, put a Band-Aid on it, and let's just go home. Because, see, as a three-year-old, she says, my hope is that this event is going to get over with. This stage of my life, could it just be over with? Let's just go home. And I asked her to do something at the father, as a father at that moment. I said, look at me, Maggie. Take your hope out of the situation and put your hope in me. You don't understand what's going on. You don't understand why this hurts so much. You don't understand what could possibly be gained from you being wrapped in a blanket to where you can't move your arms and we're holding you still. You can't, in your three-year-old mind, you can't perceive it. But you can perceive this. I'm your father and I love you. And I'm asking you to look at me. And I'm asking you to put your hope in me. Trust that I'm bigger than this situation. Trust that I'm bigger than your pain. Trust that I'm bigger than your fear. 
If I believe what we talked about this morning, I can step into that journey. And finally, and this is the last thing I'm going to say, and I'm going to get down, okay? If we believe this, it fulfills our greatest desires. Every one of us was born with a desire to get married. What? Yeah, because Paul said at the end of that passage in verse 32, this world, this present world, in its present form, is passing away. What Paul is pointing us to is that marriage, married people and single people, it's a shadow. It's a shadow of something real that's being cast. The shadow's not real. The thing that casts the shadow is real. It's a photograph. But when we have a photograph and we step into the presence of the person that we have the photograph about, we put the photograph down and we say, I see you. And the scripture says that marriage is nothing more than a shadow of the fact that we were made to be married to him. That he is preparing a bride for himself. That he is the beautiful groom. It says in Revelations chapter 20, listen to this. Because people, this is what we were made for. The intimacy, the being known, the knowing. Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride. Beautifully dressed for her husband. That's us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying. Look. God dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And listen to the promise he makes of his bride. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things have passed away. God is good. He is good. And what he's doing is good. Let's pray. Lord. A lot of friends in this room, Lord, that are in good places, tough places. I know that there's a thousand questions, Father, about the life of being single. I know there are a thousand questions about leaving that life behind and being married. But Lord, we pray that uh, right now we believe the truth that you're the revealer of truth. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us right now. Let us hear what you have for us. What was this about this morning for each of you in this room? What has God got for you right now? What is he saying to you? His bride. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.